Welcome to Women in Whitewater, a four-part limited audio series exploring what it's like to be a woman in the professional whitewater industry. My name is Rowan Stewart, and this podcast is the result of my outdoor and experiential education master's thesis research at Western Carolina University. The purpose of this thesis was to explore how professional women kayakers perform their gender in the leisure spaces surrounding whitewater kayaking. I also wanted to examine whether these performances resist, reinforce, or repurpose the status quo. This is episode one, the prologue. In this episode, I introduce my research, describe the methods that I use to gather data, and give an overview of the feminist post-structuralist research paradigm. If that sentence didn't make sense to you yet, don't worry about it. It is my goal that everyone who listens to this podcast will walk away with a better understanding of post-structuralism, gender performativity, and discipline, and how those three theories apply in whitewater kayaking. In every episode, I've tried to blend theory with the stories that were told to me by other women kayakers, as well as some of my own. This podcast is designed to appeal to two different audiences. First, the research fields of outdoor, adventure, and experiential education and recreation, and, perhaps more importantly, the public whitewater kayaking community, where all of these stories come from. Now, let's start off with the story that prompted me to write this thesis. The freestyle kayaking competition had just wrapped up. The scores were in, and we were hanging out next to the river. Soon, there were only two of us left chatting. It was now or never. But before I could ask if he would buy me a six-pack of beer for the party that evening, he surprised me with an unwelcome question. Why don't you dress up for the awards ceremony tonight? Catching me off guard, I replied indignantly. What? Dress up how? I am dressed. He turned his full attention to me, pausing to look me up and down. I wondered what he was seeing, glancing down at myself as well. I had on purple Chaco sandals and black athletic shorts. My hair was tied up in a ponytail, mostly covered by a crooked black flat-brim hat. My bright blue t-shirt was baggy and branded with the logo of the kayaking company I had landed a sponsorship with the year before. I looked back at him as he spoke again. Well, yeah, but why don't you put some effort in? You could brush your hair, put on a dress, or some makeup. I laughed and feigned retching. Ugh, that's not me. I don't like all that girl stuff. I don't even own makeup. I lied. I grimaced again and continued. I just don't see the point. It seems like a lot of effort for nothing. Besides, everyone would look at me weird if I got dressed up. Why would I change now? Beginning to feel uncomfortable, I looked back at the river and started to stand up from my seat on the bleachers, an excuse to leave just beginning to pass my lips when he interrupted me. Think about it. There are no other women out here getting dressed up after kayaking events. You would get more respect if you dressed like a woman. You'd look great, and it would help you to stand out from the other competitors. Don't you want people to see that you're pretty? I have chosen to explore ideas of womanhood in the context of whitewater kayaking. Personally, that space is where I first began to think about what a woman is expected to be, and those early explorations of my gender continue to impact who I am today. Additionally, I classify whitewater kayaking as an action sport, as it fits the definition given by Thorpe and Olive in their book, Women in Action Sport Cultures, 
to refer to activities that developed as an alternative to more traditional, rule-bound competitive sports. By the way, that sound you just heard is the way that I signal that a citation is present in the episode transcript. All sources used in this episode can be accessed on our website, womeninwhitewater.wordpress.com, or you can find the link in our show notes. Sport is a leading definer of masculinity in Western societies. Action sports are often used as a venue to discuss cultural understandings and expectations, and have been referred to as a potential avenue for changing and challenging traditional cultural beliefs about gender. In leisure spaces like whitewater kayaking, we see what is possible and who it is possible for us to become. There are spaces for resistance and empowerment. Women have reported feeling empowered by participating in other sports, like racing in triathlons, boxing, playing rugby, bodybuilding, climbing, or solo traveling, because they had the opportunity to resist traditional norms and gendered opportunities for leisure. Like many areas in the field of experiential and outdoor education, the paddle sport industry is male-dominated and struggles with misogyny, sexual harassment, and inequity. Whitewater kayaking is the most male-dominated paddle sport when compared to recreational kayaking, sea kayaking, rafting, or stand-up paddleboarding. From 2013 to 2019, men represented between 63 and 65 percent of all participants in whitewater. Although that number is still high across the board, male participation over all paddle sports is actually declining at 1% per year as female participation increases by that same amount. Even though women's participation in whitewater is only gradually increasing, more and more women may be finding their way to the sport in the next few years. With this in mind, what sort of a space will these women who are new to the sport find themselves in? Will they find a welcoming space or one where they feel targeted and excluded? Currently, in many outdoor spaces, women face implicit messages, beliefs, values, and assumptions based on gender that commonly lead to constraints, biases, and lack of opportunity. For example, many of the women interviewed by Alan Craig and colleagues shared experiences of being excluded from work meetings, not given promotions, or being humiliated and ignored by coworkers. These stories often come from gender biases about women's technical skills, or stereotypes that women are more suited for interpersonal skills. As women enter whitewater in growing numbers and navigate their roles in this industry, I think that it is important for us all to interrogate and deconstruct harmful narratives, such as the one in my story that I shared at the beginning of this episode. One reason that I have chosen to present my research in podcast format is to center the voices of the women who participated in my study. That is also why I have attempted to present this in language that is more accessible and to reach beyond academia to the whitewater kayaking and outdoor and adventure sport communities. This research is framed using a feminist post-structuralist research paradigm. One goal of feminist research is to provide a platform for less heard voices and reveal lived realities of power inequalities and difference. Given the male-dominated nature of whitewater and experiential and outdoor education as a whole, I think that it is important to try to understand and highlight the ways that gender is produced and reinforced in the kayaking community. 
In order to do this, I've been conducting interviews with women identifying professional kayakers. The women that I interviewed for this research all started kayaking before the age of 15. They were also all considered professionals, meaning that they received compensation from a company, business, or brand in the form of gear, money, or something else for their participation in whitewater kayaking. Each interview lasted approximately one hour and took place over Zoom. Before our interviews, each woman sent me a unique, self-composed narrative in response to the question, how do you perform your gender in kayaking spaces? Please share a story that illustrates how you navigate being a woman in kayaking spaces. The 10 women I interviewed ranged in age from 19 to 34 and are all white. Most are currently located in the southern United States of America. However, a couple are located in western USA and one participant is from Austria. Three participants opted to select or be assigned a pseudonym. However, the other seven elected to use their own identities for most of their interviews. I analyzed the data from these interviews and written narratives following the guidelines of narrative inquiry, with my early steps of data analysis modeled off of Polkinghorne's analysis of narratives, which I'll outline briefly in these three steps. First, after each interview was finished, I re-listened to the audio recording from the Zoom call and re-read both the written narrative and the interview transcript. Second, I copied each narrative into a spreadsheet and categorized themes and ideas that I recognized within each individual narrative. This led to my creation of one large list of ideas. Third, I took this list and compared my wording for each theme, questioning, for example, why I chose the word culture for one sentence, but the word dynamic for another. Basically, I looked for similarities, differences, and contradictions in my summary of the interviewee's ideas. I also used something called paralogical validity in the analysis process, which is a way to consider whether the results of research accurately represent what was said, focusing especially on the different interpretations of each story and attempting not to make assumptions. During this process, I tried not to generalize ideas to create patterns where there might not be any, but I did prioritize making a clear and understandable narrative. This narrative is inherently interpreted through the lens with which I see the world. If someone read all of the narratives and transcripts, their interpretation would likely be different. Qualitative research, like this, is interpretive research requiring the researcher to reflexively identify the way that they see the world and how their experiences may shape their reading of the data. This is an important time to tell you some more about myself and my role as a narrator, curator, and participant within this work. I am a 25-year-old white cis woman from the southeastern USA. I started kayaking when I was 10, got my first sponsorship at age 14, competed in my first international kayaking competition when I was 15, and won the ICF Freestyle World Championships when I was 16. I work in the outdoor industry as a kayak instructor, an outdoor educator, and I remain actively involved in competitive freestyle kayaking. All this to say, I came into this research with my own preconceptions based on my 15-year history in whitewater kayaking. In feminist post-structuralist research, this acknowledgement about my history and positioning is referred to as reflexivity. Simply put, reflexivity is self-reflection by the researcher that helps create an honest narrative. 
It acknowledges how the researchers' background and subject positions may shape their interpretation of the data. Qualitative researchers frequently use reflexivity as a methodological tool to legitimize, validate, and question research practices and representations. However, I attempted to keep my history and my opinions to myself during the interview process. I wanted to act as a witness to the stories and experiences of the women that I was interviewing. At times, I shared my opinions if asked or towards the end of our interviews, but I felt that it was important for me to encourage these women to share their stories without my influence. The area that my biases and history may have most influenced the direction of this research is during the data analysis. With the variety of topics and ideas discussed across all 10 of these interviews, I chose two relevant theories to guide the narratives that I included. This way I could investigate a reasonable amount of content rather than barely scraping the surface of 20 or more different ideas and topics. These two theories are gender performativity and discipline. The 10 narratives and interviews that research participants shared with me covered a vast range of topics. There were stories about feeling empowered, about being judged, and about finding role models in the sport. Stories about competing in races, being afraid, or simply going out onto the rivers to have a good time. These women shared stories of both harassment and preferential treatment that they had experienced, especially ones that they felt were based on their being a woman. They talked about receiving extra attention or sponsorship because they flirted with the men, but also being publicly judged or called out for the clothes that they were wearing. It was clear to me before beginning this research that I would never be able to compose one story that would be representative of the experiences of every woman kayaker. According to the 2019 Special Report on Paddle Sports, there are approximately 949,000 women whitewater kayakers. There is no chance that their stories and experiences are all represented in this thesis. Therefore, these stories and this thesis are not designed to be generalized or applied to all women kayakers. Now, I've used this word a lot already, but what is post-structuralism? Simply, post-structuralism is the research paradigm that I've used to guide my questions, my methods, and my analysis during this research. Post-structuralism links the ideas of language, social organization, and power. It emerged as a critique of structuralism, a paradigm that often interprets reality in a structured or binary way, implying usually that there is a hierarchy between two opposing ideas. A key belief of post-structuralism is that language shapes reality, basically that there is no one objective truth existing outside of the meaning that is created through language. For example, I learned how a post-structuralist would view truth with this example about blue jays. A blue jay is a bird that looks blue to our eyes. However, that blue color is caused by the refraction of light off of the bird's feathers. If you get a blue jay feather wet, it will actually look brown, because the color pigment in the feathers themselves is brown, not blue. Because of this different interpretation, a post-structuralist wouldn't spend too much time arguing if that blue jay is blue or brown. Instead, they would say that blue jays are both blue and brown, depending on how you see them. Furthermore, we only identify the blue jay as blue, or brown, 
because we have assigned meaning to the words blue and brown. In addition to meaning, each of those words has a value assigned to it as well. For example, blue is often considered to be more valuable than brown. Consider the obsession with blue eyes and the use of colored contact lenses. In this podcast, post-structuralist ideas significantly influence my use of the theories of gender performativity and discipline. Coming up next, episode two of this series focuses on that theory of gender performativity, especially the ideas of Judith Butler. Gender performativity pushes back against the idea that gender is something that we are born with, and instead indicates that gender is something we become. Rather than gender being something permanent and binary, like woman versus man, gender is something flexible, influenced by our culture, and performed by individuals on a daily basis. As Simone de Beauvoir said, one is not born, but rather becomes a woman. Specifically, the theories of post-structuralism and gender performativity would say that the production of gender comes from language. This is a quote from the book Genders by Elizabeth Stockton. Words enter us and words live inside us, birthing whole realms of meaning in us. Words are even draped on us. We wear girl or boy, for instance, in the form of clothes and hair and so much more. Episode three of this series focuses on Michel Foucault's ideas of surveillance and discipline. Foucault believed that nothing can be objective, that what is thought to be correct or appropriate is considered that way because of the effects of power. For Foucault, power is what produces reality, and his idea of discipline is one way that power is exercised over others. He believed that discipline makes individuals. It is the specific technique of a power that regards individuals both as objects and instruments of its exercise. Discipline is a technique for directing human behavior and can be overt, meaning that power is exercised through rules, or covert, meaning that power is exercised through more subtle interactions. The ways that we use power to discipline ourselves or others is what shapes the rules about what is acceptable in a space. At the beginning of this episode, I shared a narrative from my own life, where I was asked, why don't you dress up for the awards ceremony tonight? This is an example of covert discipline, an offhand comment from a friend to a friend. But this comment stuck with me and came to mind a week later as I was getting changed before the awards ceremony for another kayaking event. Ten years later, I still think about the rest of what he said, you would get more respect if you dressed like a woman, when I pack for kayaking events. I made and still make specific choices about what I wear based on that discipline. Additionally, I internalized that discipline, and for many years I would have told you that I was just dressing how I wanted, in what was comfortable, without realizing the impact that that conversation had on my perceptions of what clothing is appropriate to wear to kayaking events. The final episode of this series Episode 4 is titled Lessons for the Kayaking Community. It includes the stories of the women that I interviewed about the places in kayaking that they like being in the most. It also shares some of their ideas for creating more inclusive spaces and attitudes in the whitewater kayaking community. Now, before you move on to Episodes 2, 3, and 4, I want to take a second again to acknowledge the question, why a podcast? Here's the thing. This podcast exists because it's the podcast that I have always wanted to hear. 
I think that there is a gap in both research and in the media that is calling for easily accessible combinations of research and outdoor and adventure sports. I believe this podcast presents a realistic image of some aspects of the whitewater kayaking community. As you get into episodes two and three, there will be some uncomfortable and potentially triggering topics, including conversations about sexual assault in episode three. That's because these stories are real. I wasn't comfortable sharing a picture of whitewater kayaking that was unrealistic or focused only on the optimistic image that we all hope our adventure sport is. I hope these stories don't discourage people from giving whitewater kayaking a try. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you on the river.